The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello, I'm Dana Stevens, and this is the Slate Culture Gab Fest Queen of Shade Edition. It's Wednesday, March 20th, 2019, and on today's show, The Inventor is a new HBO documentary directed by Alex Gibney that profiles Elizabeth Holmes and the Theranos scandal. It's one of several competing properties now profiting on the story of this Silicon Valley fraud. Why is this resonating right now? We will discuss. Then we return to RuPaul's Drag Race. We last covered the show in 2012, back when it was a low-rated curiosity. Now it's a world-conquering phenomenon. What should we make of drag going mainstream? And finally, we will talk about brands, social media, and marketing. When Netflix tells us it's so sorry that it canceled one day at a time, should we believe it? Stephen and Julia are both out this week, but I am joined in the room by the co-author of The World Only Spins Forward and the host of Slate's Lend Me Your Ears podcast, Mr. Isaac Butler. Hello, Dana. You're becoming such a friend of the program, a FOP, a that fop yeah. you need your own special FOP acronym. You've, you're, you've, right, been very, right. you've really been a pinch hitter lately, so thank well, you. Well, it's always a pleasure to be here. And in a unique crossover event, we have brought over from the other side of the glass our producer, Benjamin Frisch, as our third discussant this week. Hey, Benjamin. Hi, Dana. I'm very happy to be on this side of the glass. I feel like you've done you've done Slate Plus segments before, but I don't think you've ever been a full-on third on the show before. This is my have first you? time co-hosting, yeah. First as a third. Yeah. <laughs> first time, long time. It's great to have you here. All right. We have a lot to talk about this week, so let's dive right into the show. With one drop of blood, Elizabeth Holmes promised to revolutionize medicine. Her company, Theranos, promised it could deliver hundreds of blood tests from one tiny sample run through a miniature testing lab the size of an office printer, nicknamed Edison, which promised to be placed in hospitals, pharmacies, and even on battlefields to provide low-cost, accurate, and fast blood test results. Theranos recruited top talent from Silicon Valley, former cabinet members, and hundreds of millions of dollars in investment capital and made Elizabeth Holmes a billionaire. But then it all fell apart. The Inventor is a documentary from HBO and the director, Alex Gibney. We discussed his work before in this show. He did the adaptation of Lawrence Wright's book, Going Clear, about Scientology. He's also made documentaries about Elliot Spitzer, about Enron. He seems to have made a subspecialty of frauds, right? Frauds and, and fraudsters, scandals of various kinds. And this is only one of several recent narrative projects centered around Theranos and Elizabeth Holmes. Um, there was a 2020 special last Friday night on ABC. There was a podcast called The Dropout, which I'm now keen to listen to, having watched this Alex Gibney doc. And uh, there's going to be a fiction film, a narrative scripted film with Jennifer Lawrence, really good casting, I think, as, as Elizabeth Holmes. So we're just going to be talking about this one particular manifestation of uh, the scandal coverage. But I hope we'll broaden out to talk a little bit more about how we narrativize scandal. Sure. in our time. But let's start by listening to a clip from The Inventor. When I think of Theranos, I really feel like there were two entirely different worlds. There was the carpeted world, and there was the tiled world. And the carpeted world was where Elizabeth was a goddess. Everyone, you know, almost worshipped the ground she walked on. She could do no wrong. She was the next Steve Jobs. Theranos was changing the world. And then you go onto the tile side and nothing works. We're on a sinking ship. Everything's a lie. Reconciling the differences between those two worlds was really hard for me to do. I knew Elizabeth personally from all these interactions through my family. Um, so I really trusted her. I believed in her. I would leave the tiled world thinking, oh man, sinking ship. And I would go have one conversation with Elizabeth. Theranos was founded with the goal of 
creating a more actionable experience if you can begin to understand your body. And I would be so motivated to go back and work, and I felt like I was changing the world again. And I would go back into the tile world, and I would go, wait, what just, what just happened? So the speaker you heard there was Tyler Schultz, who was a lab scientist working for the Theranos Project. He's also the grandson of George Schultz, the former Secretary of State, is that Secretary right? Secretary of State, yeah. Who was one of the investors. He sat on the board of the company. And we'll talk about this, but so did many other right-wing politicians, old white guys, seem to be very drawn to sitting on the board of Theranos. I should preface our inventor discussion by saying, for whatever reason, I knew almost nothing about this story going in. So really, everything I know about the Theranos scandal comes from Alex Gibney's documentary. I'm now really curious to listen to the podcast about it, which is supposed to be great. Curious for the upcoming movie about it. It's an incredible story, but I'm not sure that this documentary does a great job of explaining it. You know, it's funny because I I read Bad Blood maybe three weeks ago uh, or something like that. So, you know, I was there, which is the John Kerry Rue book length uh, reporting out of the rise and fall of Theranos, which I believe is the thing Adam McKay is optioning to turn into the film with Jennifer Lawrence. Uh, and John Carreyrou is the person who first broke the stories about Theranos's fraud for The Wall Street Journal. And he appears in the in the um, in the inventor. Um, and so I was curious to see these diff- differing versions of the story. But I, I have a question for you, Dana, because you said, you know, after seeing this documentary, do you feel like you actually could with any kind of brevity, explain the story of Theranos? Because I felt while watching the movie, like if I didn't know this story, this would just be like very confusing until about the final 30 minutes. Yeah, no, I think I would I would have grasped the basic paradox that you hear in that clip, right? That there was this there was this startup that sounded great on paper in TED Talks and that actually behind the scenes was a mess. The documentary is good at capturing that uh, those two worlds and them clashing against each other. Um, But in terms of the background of who Elizabeth Holmes was, why she started this, even just basically where she's from and what's her family background. There was a moment that there was a family snapshot of her with her mother and her little brother. And it wasn't just accompanied with your basic documentary framing of sort of she grew up in a suburban blah, blah, and so and so. (laughs) I don't know anything about how she got into Stanford, which is the university she was at when she came up with this scheme and then dropped out at 19 in order to pursue it. Um, Yeah, pretty much basic biographical information was lacking. And certainly the science of what she said she was doing, it was not clear why it was impossible to do. And it was interesting, for example, to hear one of her professors at Stanford, who from the beginning saw through the fraud um, and and thought the whole thing was nonsense. Dr. Phyllis Gardner. Dr. Phyllis Gardner, Queen of Shade, Shade, (laughs) after whom our edition is named this week. It was it was really interesting to hear her talking about the science being untenable, but I could have done with a little explainer. Like, let's have a little expository moment where we look at some graphs of blood cells or whatever and learn about why it's impossible. Yeah. Coming out of this documentary, you don't actually get a sense of whether or not the thing that they were trying to make, the Edison, the the tiny mini lab, was actually scientifically tenable or not. Like, I still don't know. Is it actually like if they had been given more time and if it people had been more competent and it had been allowed to sit like, is it actually possible to do this thing? I mean, the fact that nobody else is trying right now tells me that, no, it probably was impossible. But we, I think that that's one of the major flaws of this documentary. And it reminds me actually of something that um, you said once a long time on this show um, Dana, that I think about a lot, which was during your discussion of boyhood, you said something that was like, if there were a dozen movies that were made in the same way, like, would this version of 
that movie be the best version, which I always thought was a really smart way to think about movies that are formally very, very um, unique and challenging, I guess. And this case, I think documentaries are a really good way to kind of test that maxim because we actually, in this case, we do have several other um, projects. And so I've listened to about half of the podcast version, The Dropout, the dropout yeah. um, which I should say I, I have a friend um, who worked on that show, but um, he did not create it or anything, but you can take you know my opinion with a grain of salt if you like. But I think that that show does a much better job of getting really granular and laying out why um, like sort of setting the stage for how this thing kind of became a fraud. And it does get into some of the stuff about her childhood and her early life. This is interesting because as someone who's like taught creative nonfiction and, you know, is writing a book right now, you know, you think about all these sort of there's an infinite number of ways to tell a story and they all have their benefits and drawbacks. And one of the interesting things about Bad Blood, which is a really great book, I I, I would recommend it, is it takes this story and it's like a 350 page TikTok. It is a recitation of factual events in the order in which they happened. Deeply sourced. The reporting is extremely compelling. But Carrie Rue, who's an extremely good journalist, does no interpreting of it for you. And there's none of the kind of signposts you're used to in a book, right? So it's like, it's just sort of, it's kind of just the facts, ma'am, you know? Whereas Gibney is all interpretation and association. It's like, Ugh, hey, hey I hated the Edison it. stuff. The, Ed- the Edison stuff, there's all this. Oh, let's talk about the oh. Edison stuff. We have to identify. So the machine is called the Edison, right? The bogus machine that she's trying to get people to invest in, the blood testing machine. That and- it never, I just want to underline, at no point did it properly work, right? It, there are certain tests that under ideal conditions it could run, but it never actually did any of the things they really claimed that it could. Anyway, sorry, go on, the Edison. Right, but just so the, taking off from the fact that it's called the Edison, uh, Alex Gibney puts in all of these old clips from early Thomas Edison films. There's sort of a, a brief potted history of who Thomas Edison was and, and to the degree to which he was kind of a huckster as well as a legitimate inventor. And, you know, for example, I don't think Gibney says this, but he slapped his name on a motion picture machine that he had not in any way invented. Right. There was just a less name inventor who had made this thing work that lots of people, including the Lumiere brothers, were trying to make work at the same time. And Edison kind of hogged the credit for himself and marketed it that way. So I guess what he's doing is linking Elizabeth Holmes to Edison as a bogus inventor. But I think what he's really doing is like footage of oldie timey movies looks really cool in documentaries. And so he like found a way to get it in there is what it kind of looked like to me. I don't know. And as somebody who loves oldie timey footage, I didn't know what it was doing in there. And I would have rather had those few minutes be devoted to understanding Elizabeth Holmes a little better, including, I mean, this is probably my big overarching question about this story, and it's probably unanswerable, but it's fascinating, is to what degree did Elizabeth Holmes think that the Edison could work or would work as opposed to just wanting to sell the idea of it to people. And that is kind of the mystery at the heart of this documentary is the strange robotic emptiness of the cult of personality around Elizabeth Holmes. I mean, it was because, presumably, she was good at selling things and good at talking and good at seducing people into her ideas that she got all these investors and, you know, got this billion-dollar company funded. But she's there's something so repellent about her to me as a as a public figure. I mean, of course, knowing what we know about her now is because she's a liar and a fraudster. But even sort of in her TED talk, supposedly inspiring persona, she seemed almost like an uncanny valley robot to me. (laughs) I don't understand how where the appeal comes from. I I think one thing that this documentary and um, 
any video documentary about her does have advantage over the podcast is just that you get to see her and her face and her eyes are clearly a very, very important part of her persona. When you look at her face and her eyes, like she's almost like an anime character. Yeah, her, I, I her wrote eyes. Alita Battle Angel. In <laughs> yes, my sir. Notes. I mean, her, her eyes are unnaturally her, large, are huge. There's so much white. There's something hypnotic about her face. I was trying to think about like why doesn't this work in a two-hour format, whereas something like you know the the Fire Festival documentaries really do, and I think that's probably the best comparison to make, and. So part of my job at Slate is I make documentaries. I uh, produce the show Decodering, which we've talked about on this show before. And, you know, thinking about, like, why why does this work as a podcast versus why doesn't it work as a movie? And I think part of it has to do with the subject. Whereas something like the Fire Festival, the characters and the themes are all so broad that the, like, the wide swaths are deeply entertaining. Whereas in this story, in the Theranos story, the things that are really interesting are not actually the wide swaths that you can get to in two hours. Like Elizabeth Holmes is a total enigma. Everything's very complicated. It's not clear who knows what or why. The real meat and the juicy bits are all in the granular details of the story. Like, was that Elizabeth Holmes' voice? Apparently, it wasn't her right. real voice. Right, she speaks in this gravelly, low but, voice like that the, is apparently completely affected. And it's not even in the Gibney documentary. He doesn't address that fact. It's such a good fact. How could you not right. put that in the documentary? It, or that, you know, like, they don't spend a lot of time on this, but that, that company, like, drove one of its employees to kill himself. And, like, the yeah. book makes it very clear that they are responsible for his death. And the movie is kind of like, oh, and in the midst of this, he killed himself. I think that Elizabeth Holmes's the, the the enigma of her, the unsolvable mystery of her is why we keep returning to this over and over and over again. But I also think that that leads Gibney to make two kind of, um, I, I think, mistakes in telling this story. One is, and I, I read this in an interview with him, and he includes clips of other people saying it. So he he clearly thinks that Elizabeth, or, or seems to allege, that Elizabeth Holmes set out to help people, then the technology didn't work, and then this series of little lies cascaded into larger and larger and larger lies. And it seems very clear to me from John Kerry Rue's reporting that there is no evidence to support that she ever had any interest in helping people. And that was why she set out to do this. She wanted to be a billionaire when she was a child. She modeled her life after Steve Jobs, who also didn't set out to help people. She, you know, like she, she, you know, there's like a sort of delusional thing. But the other thing is that there's a, a, a much, how do I put this, much more um, sort of odd but less enigmatic figure in this story, who is her boyfriend, Sonny Balwani, who... He's also uh, the chief operating officer of the company. Yeah, right? and this this fraud was actually perpetrated by the two of them. And, and there's a lot of stuff in Bad Blood about once he joins the company, it becomes far more paranoid. And it becomes this security state where they're reading everyone's emails and everything like that. Like, it really is a co-creation of the two of them. And he's largely left out, I feel like, of the film. Whereas it really is the two of them together in this sort of you know, couple's delusion um, uh, creating this, this you know, thing together. 
But pulling out for a second from just this documentary to just talk about the genre that it falls into, which is something we've been talking about more and more on this show because it's playing a bigger and bigger part in our culture. What's going on with, you know, these multi-platform scandal documentaries and fictional movies? And I mean, it happened with the Fire Festival. I know there's going to be in multiple Anna Delvey projects. Right. Yeah. Um, another another fraud and grift story that's that's taken off and that people seem to be running with. I mean, I guess one of my questions is why the multi-platform approach? Why do we feel like we need to keep on approaching a story again and again from different angles? And also why this kind of story is so seductive right now? I don't know. Either of you have any thoughts? You know, is it is it too facile to say we have a, a con man whose entire fortune and public persona was built on multiple different frauds sitting in the White House? And this is some way of our believing the truth will come out, comes out in our interest in these stories. I mean, is that I don't know. Is that lame? I mean, I, I'm sure that doesn't hurt. But I also just think like these stories just work. Like we did a, an episode of Decodering that was about a grifter. In In a way, they are superheroes because... Like, we all wish that we had the power to fool people in this way. Like, it is kind of a superpower to be able to be so brazen and trick everyone and not care. Like, I think all of us kind of wish a little bit that we had the ability to do that, even if we wouldn't actually employ it. Right, to be liberated from the constraints of morality in some way. But once again, I guess the, the Elizabeth Holmes thing just remains this place where my brain just sticks. Like, why her? There are so many more, I don't know, charismatic people out there selling things, but something about her particular pitch really seduced people. Yeah. And I think, you know, a thing that has been underexplored in sort of everything I've read about Theranos is that that group of old men all came from the Hoover Institution, which is a libertarian, right wing libertarian um, think tank that's at Stanford. Right. And so, like, part of what this story is, is you have a bunch of old men who are dedicated to the idea that the regulatory state is the enemy and that it should be destroyed, who get on board this medical technology company that is also saying that the med- that that medicine can just sort of be disrupted by the private sector and that it can be reformed through essentially, you know, you know, corporate benevolence right and the and the profit motive uh and then the whole thing falls apart because the very regulatory state they're trying to destroy has oversight over it and they finally come in and they shut it down you know like there that to me is actually the most interesting irony about this story probably because of my politics but you know that part of it is is that the thing that she is pitching it's not just her i mean the thing that she is pitching has a certain ideological appeal to those people i think Wow, that was Metcalfian in its in its scope <laughs> and degree of paranoia. <laughs> uh, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> All right. We'll have to wrap there, but there's much more to be said about this topic, and maybe we'll revisit Elizabeth Holmes again when Jennifer Lawrence plays her on screen. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. 
All right, it's the time in the show where we talk about the bidness. And since I usually do that, but now I'm hosting, so it would be weird for me to throw to myself, sure. I will throw to you, Isaac Butler. All what's, right. What's the Let, business? Let's do the business. First, we want to tell you about the Slate Culture Newsletter. It's a great way to keep up with all of Slate's culture coverage, plus insight on the best of movies, TV, books, music, and even Dana's reviews for the site. It's delivered three times a week, so just visit slate.com slash culture news. Also, Slate Plus is celebrating its fifth anniversary this year, so we're throwing parties across the country just for our members. Enjoy a festive evening with some of your favorite Slatesters over drinks for a fun night of conversation and trivia. The first drink is on us, and thank you. Whether you've been a member for five years or five days, your support makes our work possible. And if I could just say, Slate Plus's support made Lemmier Ears entirely possible, so thank you for that subscription. Uh, we're hosting parties on April 3rd in D.C., Brooklyn, and San Francisco. Go to slate.com slash live for tickets and info. Just hopping in to say that I'm going to be at the Brooklyn party, so I hope to All see right. some people out there. In Slate Plus today, we're talking about our favorite documentaries. To hear segments like that and to get ad-free podcasts, sign up for Slate Plus. Slate Plus is our membership program, and it is a great way to support us. For just $35 for your first year, you can help cover the cost of producing the Culture Gab Fest and your other favorite Slate shows. And of course, in return, you'll get extended ad-free versions of this show and other great Slate shows and a ton of other benefits. So if you'd like to support the Culture Gab Fest, go to slate.com slash culture plus and join Slate Plus today. All right, let's go. RuPaul's Drag Race is a reality competition show in which a dozen or so drag queens compete in drag related challenges, with one queen being eliminated each week in a lip sync for your life, a gauntlet in which two queens lip sync against each other as a last ditch effort to remain on the show. This show was created and continues to be hosted by the drag queen RuPaul Charles, and over 11 seasons and four seasons of its all-stars offshoot, it's grown from a small parody of reality competition shows on Logo TV into the defining show of the reality competition genre airing on VH1. This show is now monstrously popular, both among queer people and young heterosexual women, bringing with it increasingly self-aware contestants and an often toxic fan culture. Before we get into all of this, let's listen to a clip from the most recent season, season 11, which is now airing on VH1. Mercedes wanted to stay. We got the message. But Mercedes needs to turn out these challenges. She's a little bit introverted, and her looks are not that strong either. So it's like, where are you going to be strong at? You're struggling in all the categories. You got to pick a struggle. You can't struggle in everything, bitch. Yo, go home. How about two winners for the challenge? Yes, yes. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Are y'all yes, gonna that This should have been my challenge. I feel like I'm fading away. I need to, like, figure out how to be a star in a room full of stars. I delivered in the challenge. And I hope I send a message to anyone who maybe is discounting me. <laughs> Ben, I just have to start off by saying that as you instructed me sternly, I watched with my 13-year-old daughter, who's already a fan, not a... I discovered that she's sort of a YouTube fan. She knows clips. When I asked her, are you watching the current season, she didn't seem to be aware of what season she was in. I think she just sort of consumes it, as probably a lot of people do, in YouTube clips of, of various performances. But she definitely fits into that demographic that you were talking about and that some of our, our articles we read in, in prep for this segment talked about, the uh, the teen and preteen girls, she just turned 13, who for some reason that's somewhat hard to figure out are incredibly identified with drag queens. They're fabulous. <laughs> like, I mean, it's just, I think it's that. I mean, if you want to get... Is it the transformation element? I mean, but why specifically so, teenage girls? Because it's a, I have a theory that like drag queens are sort of like 
commedia dell'arte characters like they are these stock characters that show up in different permutations like and drag queens all kind of slot themselves into these kind of archetypes so you have like a hollywood bimbo type which is like scarlet envy in this season um and then you have like nina west who's a comedy sort of camp performer and you have like pageant girls and and i think for young girls it's kind of a fun way to project oneself and to identify with these different archetypes i mean for me like my kind of queen the kind of queen that i love um is like a conceptual art queen so this season i like evie oddly um who makes these she recently came out in this like amazing jellyfish outfit there is a lot of self-identification going on and kind of learning to figure out what kind of art you like because the different queens kind of represent different art styles if you have a conceptual queen versus kind of this like classic glamour like where do you fall um and then they have their own personalities which ones do you identify with yeah there is something kind of fun about like you know you you have a society telling you that there are these like certain prescribed models that you have to fit within and then you have this television show that's like well, actually, you can just sort of construct that for yourself and take it off whenever you feel like it. And this is a performance and there's a level of irony and fabulousness to, you know, the construction of the self. I think there's something like really appealing. I, I find that really appealing and I'm not a, a teenage girl, but, you know, I, I feel like there must be something very, uh, very appealing about that. Yeah, there's a there's a playfulness, obviously, a playfulness with identity and an idea that you can you can invent who you are. But at the same time, I mean, if I can just speak as the as the woman in the room, I don't know. I I do understand the critique. I don't feel it a lot watching the yep. show because the show is fun and delightful and doesn't take itself seriously. Um, and it doesn't give you the time to think about anything because it's just sort of racing from one challenge to the next. But I see the critique of drag, of a certain certain performance of drag as a kind of vector for some misogyny or 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 maybe it's not misogyny is not quite the word but a certain uh need to to slot women into types i mean i can also imagine as a teen girl watching this thinking it's it's so much work to produce oneself you know i have to right. come up with this perfect identity and have you know excellent nose contouring and you know there is there is a side to this show that is about prescriptive beauty even though it is a much more open and playful form of beauty than we get in mainstream representations right like it sort of parodies those expectations and depends on them simultaneously which is the odd kind of intersection that that it's constantly playing within about being a reality show as well. It's a parody of a reality show and it is sincerely a reality show simultaneously, which I think is one of the sort of uh, uh, really interesting things about watching it. Like it's um, uh, the catchphrases are so sort of deliberately um, almost like a dad joke level of puns, like congratulations or, you know, whatever it is that you're like, like it, it, it's clearly mocking that it's a reality show, but then it is also a reality show whose contestants are taking it quite seriously and crying and, you know, pouring their heart and soul into making these costumes at the same time, which is a really fascinating, like, um, a double game to be playing. I felt like to me, the thing I missed was like the discussion of, craft and process like the 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 two reality shows that i follow pretty religiously are great british bake-off because it's like being hugged 
or <laughs> getting into a bath of chamomile tea and uh, and Top Chef. And the reason why I love Top Chef is that it's basically a show about making art. You know, it's like you I mean, it, I don't think food and art are exactly the same, but you have a, a group of like expert creative craftsmen in RuPaul's Drag Race. There's not time for that. They have three challenges, the mini challenge, the maxi challenge and the runway. And early on, they have like so many contestants, you know, like so I, I, I'm very curious because the looks, particularly on the runway, are so amazing. Like, how did you come up with this superhero costume or wh- how, why did you decide to paint your all of yourself? And I do mean all of yourself pink and come out as a jellyfish or, you know, uh, uh, how did they script those? There's a great uh, episode where they have to do these like late night evangelical TV show parodies. And it's like, how did you script it or develop your persona? Yeah, for those are literally you have to come up with a sketch, basically. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And to me, like that is actually what I love about reality shows that feature artists and craftspeople. And I do think like the contestants on the show are all expert craftspeople and really inventive, interesting artists. And I would love to get to know more about all of them, even the ones who are going to sort of the chaff to be eliminated early on, on, on that front. Well, one thing that's happened over time is drag has sort of changed. I mean, we should say like this television show has completely revolutionized drag as an art form. Yeah. Drag used to be, you know, something that didn't have an end point. Like there was no like if you were going to have a career in drag, you would perform in clubs. Maybe you would tour a little bit, but it was a niche profession and a niche performance career, you know, and now drag has an end point where the professionally the end point is to be on RuPaul's Drag Race. And if you're on RuPaul's Drag Race, you become essentially world famous, Um, even if you don't win. Uh, even if you don't win, although it helps to have gone a few episodes in, but that's not always the case. Vanessa Vanji Mateo, Miss Vanji. Um, Who's the only returning contestant this season. Right. I have to say, I am team Vanji. I I'm, think she is amazing. I'm Every time she opens Vanjie. her mouth, pure gold mm-hmm. comes out. <laughs> I just like, God, I love watching she, her. She kind of has like a Muppet voice. Um, and what she was the first eliminated on the last season. She it was a design challenge, and she came out in a pretty awful, formless outfit. Um, and but she had this exit where she just repeated her own name like a Pokemon, like as she <laughs> as she was kind of leaving the stage. She said, "This man, she and it and, worked. She got back on, and it became a meme. And what you're seeing now more and more on the show is like this kind of self awareness. It's like. Um, I think even on the the evangelical challenge, I think Plastique Tiara, um, a very, very beautiful queen, um, says something that's like, we need memeable moments. You know, like everybody's kind of thinking in this increasingly meta way. And there's a part where RuPaul sort of dismisses one of what one of the people is doing on camera by being like, oh, you're aiming for a spinoff. And th- to shut one of them down, you know what I mean? Because which indeed she was, um, uh, right? Like so, there is this interesting, like the self awareness has gotten sort of multi layered, and I, I think that's probably to the detriment of the show. Hmm. If you go back to seasons, you know, like the peak of the show is maybe seasons four through six or seven, but I, I think they're all basically worth watching. The queens are much less self aware. Which feels a little bit more authentic and they're a little bit craftier. Like now, it used to be that like you were a lot of these drag queens were really designers and were really making all of their own outfits. And now you have this suite of like high camp fashion designers who create outfits for drag queens 
I think that maybe there's a something that's a little bit lost, like an individual touch. I mean, it's still about taste and styling and, you know, creating a style that's all your own. But I do kind of miss the craftier aspects of drag. And you see, you still see that in some of the queens. Um, Evie Oddly is clearly a very crafty queen. But just I just want to just say that to underscore the fact that the, the form has really changed and become a little bit more professionalized in a way um, where it's like it's more about performance is more about presentation than it necessarily is about the actual like boots on the ground creation of objects. Another thing that's changed, obviously, in the nine years this show has been airing is our understanding of gender, right? It's gotten Mm -hmm. much more complicated and more there's more of a gender multiverse than there was back when this started to air. And so I wanted to close talking about that. And it's, it's it's a huge question because there's the scandal of RuPaul having been accused of making transphobic comments uh, in in saying, for example, that he didn't want trans women on the show um, because it was not the same thing, right? Essentially that you were not in drag if you were a person who was transitioning. And I'm also just curious about the gender presentation of the drag queens doing the show. I mean, this season they are all men, people who identify as men who dress up as women, right? Public, publicly, at least. And uh, and there were several who, in their interviews in the first episode of the season, referred to themselves as a cute boy or a man. I was just interested in, um, you especially, Ben, having watched all the seasons of the show, I assume, um, how that's changed over the course of the show and, and whether the greater openness about gender in the culture in general, which is in part, I'm sure, due to shows like RuPaul's Drag Race, has maybe made this show dated and not and no longer at the cutting edge of what gender identification is i I will say to be fair to the show um for the last all-star season it did welcome back a drag queen who transitioned post show gia gunn lives as a woman and she was welcome back to the show so i think that there's definitely been some backtracking on rupaul's comments about trans women appearing on the show, which are, of course, ridiculous. One of the wonderful things about Drag Race is that it's made drag much more popular on the ground level. Um, you know, Brooklyn, obviously, where we live, is a great place to see drag. There's, um, I'd maybe recommend if you if you live in the city, there's a sort of a collective of non-traditional drag and burlesque artists called Switch and Play that features female queens um, doing drag. It's still gender performance, but they're women doing it. Uh, burlesque drag kings. Um, there's a drag king named uh, Kay James that I think is just wonderful. And I think one of part of the spillover effect of Drag Race is that it's the show itself does have a very has a somewhat limited view of what drag is. I I am not sure we're going to see any women doing drag on Drag Race anytime soon. But part of the spillover effect of the show is that it really has created an audience for weirder drag and for um, less traditional forms of gender performance. Um, and I think that that's a really wonderful thing. Before before we wrap, Dana, can I just ask who is your favorite queen from the season? I'm not sure yet. I'm actually really into Nina West, the comedy queen mm-hmm. that you talked about. Uh, there was an early challenge where they had to try to get into a club as if it were <laughs> the 1990s or something. I don't remember the setup, but she ended up winning that challenge because she wore an enormous pair of fake teeth and basically deliberately made herself look sort of comical and grotesque. And uh, and so I appreciated that. But yeah, Vanjie is fun. They're just, I, I, there's so many of them that I can't keep them all straight now, but there are a lot of big personalities that I would be willing to keep following. So thanks for making us watch the show. 
You're very welcome. I'm so glad that we got to talk about it. All right. If you want to join this complicated conversation about Drag Race, please join us on Twitter at Slate Cold Fest. We'd love to hear from you. For our third topic, we're going to talk about Netflix and their cancellation of the much-beloved multi-camera sitcom One Day at a Time about a Latin American family and their everyday conflicts. The show is celebrated for its representation of Latin American women and queer people. It was the subject of campaigns by the creators to save the show, and it seemed for all three seasons that the show was always on the edge of cancellation. Now, after three seasons, it's happened. In the aftermath, Netflix apologized on Twitter, and here's a quote from their apology. To anyone who felt seen or represented, possibly for the first time, by one day at a time, please don't take this as an indication your story is not important. The outpouring of love for this show is a firm reminder to us that we must continue finding ways to tell this story. This apology struck some critics as hollow coming from a company as secretive and as successful as Netflix, and it got us thinking about the state of corporate social media culture and the way brands become personalities. So this is a big topic. We're talking about a lot of things. We're not really focusing on one day at a time, but using it as a jumping off point. But Ben, since you have watched some one day at a time, can you first just respond about the cancellation of the show itself? Yeah, I mean, I think it's, you know, it's too bad that the show got canceled, but at the same time, it had three seasons. Most shows don't get three seasons. Like, it's great that that show exists. It will continue to exist. People will continue to find meaning in it. Um, You know, it does. There was always something very, very strange about not the show itself, but sort of the air around the show. The two creators of the show um, who we interviewed on our very first episode of Decoder Ring, actually, they were kind of always in this mode of basically begging people to watch their show in a way that felt sort of strange especially from a Netflix show you don't hear the creators of other Netflix shows of The Ranch or whatever going out (laughs) and being like please watch our show or it's going to be cancelled and you know it was always very heartfelt and I never begrudged them for it but it 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 was pretty weird and the relationship between Netflix and One Day at a Time has always been quite strange because people it had a it's hard to know actually how many people watched it because Netflix doesn't tell us. And I think if Netflix actually told us that like, well, literally only like 5,000 people watched one day at a time, I think it would be easier for people to stomach this news. But part of the problem is that we just have no idea how many people were watching the show. And yet they cited the low viewership as the reason it was being canceled. Yeah, I mean, you know, the the networks have since time immemorial put beloved shows on the bubble and then fans have had to kind of abjectly demonstrate their love of the show in order to get it renewed. I mean, the like really famous recent example of that is the TV show Community, which by the time the penultimate time it was canceled because it moved networks and was canceled multiple times. The The penultimate time it was canceled, Dan Harmon actually said on his podcast, like, please don't do anything to try to get this renewed. Like, it's actually kind of sickening that we have to do this every year and that you guys have to do this. And I just don't want you to do it. You know, like, I mean, so <laughs> he signed like, a DNR. Yeah, 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 yeah. And and then they renewed it. I mean, then it got renewed on, you know, Yahoo's briefly lived. I don't know. Shebang.com or and whatever. But I think that shows actually in the case of community, I sort of think that shows reputation and kind of cultural life would be stronger had it ended after three seasons. It would have gone out on a high note. Instead, we got these like weird zombie seasons that didn't have either the creator or all the actors. Arrested Development had a similar trajectory, right? And they just kind of 
like I I think it's okay that a show only lasted three seasons. It yeah I I completely agree with that. I think that there's a weird thing that happened to all of us in the midst of the the streaming boom where it's we're suddenly not sure whether it matters if anyone watches a TV show or not, and so then when. Netflix actually cancels a show that's gotten a lot of press and is a critical darling. Uh, it's like suddenly a reminder that maybe it does actually matter how many people watch these shows and these companies at some point do actually have to make money and they can't just rely on constant in influx of, you know, um, stock market cash uh, 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 to stay afloat. You know, Netflix has like very, very serious commitments coming down the road in terms of what they have to pay to keep a show like Friends or whatever around and, you know, to keep that ship afloat, they are going to be more and more motivated by profit as time goes on. And I think a lot of people were surprised by that. Well, can we talk about the characterization of Netflix that has emerged, not just in relation to this one day at a time story, but in relation to the fight that they had with Steven Spielberg recently, the company Netflix had with Steven Spielberg over uh, qualification for the Oscars. Isaac, you have something to say about that. Yeah, well, I mean, I don't know all the nitty gritty details of the fight that Steven Spielberg slash the Academy are having with Netflix, but it has to do with trying to change the eligibility rules so that fewer things that Netflix produces are actually eligible or that the movies that they create have to play in more theaters for longer in order to be eligible for prizes. Right, with Roma being the, the spark that set off the fire of this fight. Right. Because right. there is the feeling, which I have some sympathy with, that rules that are designed to help small companies, little independent producers and smaller films, uh, that system is being gamed by a multi-billion dollar company so that they have to have, make a minimal commitment to getting these movies in theaters in order to be eligible. So I, I, I get it. My, my sympathies actually probably more lie with Netflix in that. But the thing that enraged me was Netflix's campaign as a result of it that they are this sort of like beneficent company that underdog is underdog company that is lifting up the downtrodden and representing underrepresented stories because they just care so much about them and us and, and there's a promotional video they circulated right in response to Spielberg that was essentially clips from all of their shows that have characters from marginalized communities. Totally. And given the um, ongoing shifting dynamics at the Academy, that's like a very smart move to make, right? Given that the Academy just gave Green Book Best Picture, that's like a very smart move to make. But, uh, and I do think Netflix does have, I would guess, a more diverse slate of original programming than most TV networks do. And 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 that's that's good. I think that's a good thing. But they're doing that because they have discovered an undertapped market and are trying to tap it. Like they just they want to make money. And I'm not saying that's good or bad. I'm just saying the idea that we are now to treat Netflix like it's our friend when it's actually like a huge company. It's not a human being. I'm sure they're a very good human being in it. But like that attempt to play in our sympathies and get people to stand for a giant corporation just like makes me feel vaguely ill. And I think that that's where a lot of the tension around this apology the, about the cancellation of one day at a time fits in and like why it feels so weird. I hated this. Like <laughs> it's like, oh, we like these stories are so important. Like if they actually are important, like Netflix could float one day at a time indefinitely if it wanted to. And clearly it doesn't want to. And just the idea that like we're we're supposed to sympathize with Netflix here or treat them as like a human being or a character that just had to make a really tough decision. Like we should feel bad for Netflix for them. Can't like it must have just been really hard for you 
to kill this shit. Yeah, I mean, just like, fuck off. <laughs> like, just say you canceled it because nobody was watching it. Like, I mean, as brands, especially brands on Twitter, kind of create personalities, it seems like Netflix is extremely confused about what it wants to be. Um, and this was a very strange projection of personality from a brand that mostly exists as an ephemeral mega platform that doesn't have a personality. The idea that it has a soul, besides the fact that it is a, you know, mega capitalist organization, it just doesn't make any sense. Yeah, it's it's it's, it's insidious, right? I mean, not just when Netflix does it, but when any brand that's turning itself into a personality and, you know, like Wendy's is having a A, a Twitter war with... with <laughs> oh, my God. I mean, it's almost like it struck me reading about this that it's sort of like the cultural version of Citizens United, the Supreme Court decision, right, that made corporations people for the sake of campaign donations. Right. It's like we're making corporations people for the sake of... What exactly? Sympathizing with them, fighting with them in social media? I have a friend who used to write Totino's Twitter feed, and she just made, like, absurdist jokes on it, which was kind of great. It was like someone from Adult Swim was running their Twitter feed, is what it felt like. Uh, and so, like, I'm okay with that. It's like, if you want to make me laugh, whatever. But yeah, Well, I follow Steakums. I mean, I'm not yeah. crazy. Yeah, exactly. But the idea, there is something... Very little makes me feel more Gen X than people's affection for brands, you know, where nothing makes me feel older and more out of touch because it's like I'm from the generation where we all read no logo in college. Do you know what I mean? Like like the idea that now we're going to rely on these brands to fix things is just just makes me feel terrible. I can just say as a as the millennial in the room <laughs> that I also feel that Isaac right. um, and I think for most people, I don't think that they would say it's like, I love brands. Like literally nobody says I love brands except people that work in brands. But Netflix's tweet did go viral when they posted that sappy video about how incredibly benevolent and racially diverse they are. And people loved it. People responded to it and took took the side of Netflix and the beef against Spielberg. And I think people wanted to have a side to take that would make them feel good about themselves and were not really questioning the fact that it was this odd assumption of identity and soul by a brand. The only thing that I would say is that uh, it is positive that there I mean, it is a positive thing that there is a that there that larger corporations are starting to take these sort of representational issues seriously and want to have a diverse slate of of offerings like it's it's not like that is bad. Like it's probably it's a good thing that uh, Net, one of Netflix's new slate of podcasts that they're going to offer is this sh- is, you know, called Strong Black Legends like that. That is a positive thing. There's just this like there is something icky about them then wanting to be like congratulated for it and and uh, uh, treated like a human being and all of the kind of complexities that one would treat an individual human to me. If you yourself want to get in a Twitter beef with us about this, you can join us at Slate Cult Fest on Twitter. I would love to hear from you. It's a big topic. I mean, I'm sure we're going to be coming back to this in, in some way or another as, you know, brands continue to infiltrate our psyches. Wow, it, our time went by and we've gotten to that moment in the show where we endorse already. Um, Isaac, let's start with you. What have you got? I have two things. 
Uh, the first thing I wanted to endorse, uh, I, I will say just openly at the beginning that friends of mine are involved in it, but it just started previews on Broadway. And if you are in New York or going to New York, uh, you must, must get tickets to see the most important uh, thing happening in a theater right now, which is Heidi Schreck's What the Constitution Means to Me, directed by Oliver Butler, who is no relation, but did officiate my wedding. Um, so uh, the show is amazing. Slate has actually kind of gone all in on this show in an earlier form. Sam Adams did a really wonderful interview that maybe we can put on the on the page about it. And I actually interviewed Heidi and Oliver when I guest hosted The Gist uh, a while ago. And um, it is uh, it sort of takes its title as far as it possibly can. Heidi Schreck grew up uh, uh, going to speak at American Legion halls about the meaning of the Constitution and her favorite amendment of the Constitution, stuff like that. That's actually how she paid to go to college. And the show is about that experience and about what it means to be uh, a woman in America and how the, the, the way our country was set up impacts sort of every level of that experience. It's funny. It's deeply moving. It's it's brilliant. Uh, um, it's a one-woman show? It's a, no, it's actually, there's actually three people on stage, but I would call it a punctuated one-woman show. Uh, it's mostly Heidi and, you know, the sort of conceit of it is she controls that entire environment. Uh, I almost think knowing less going into it is 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 kind of better because the, there's a sort of constant sense of invention uh, around its premise of her talking about these um, lectures that she gave as a child um, uh, that that has a lot of payoff. Um, it's really wonderful. I just, I was totally over the moon for it and I think everyone should go see it. So what the constitution means to me, which is uh, currently in previews on Broadway. And then um, if I can just, you know, I'm, I'm a, as a guest, I got to get my endorsements out. Uh, uh, an album I've been really enjoying recently is uh, called silences by Adia Victoria. Who's a Nashville based singer songwriter who defines her sound as goth blues. Uh, and this new album, sounds a bit like a collaboration between Billie Holiday and Nick Cave. Uh, it's produced by the Nationals' Bryce Dessner, so it has that kind of very lush sound that could kind of veer at any moment from synth pop to Weimar, um, but it still all feels like one organic thing. Her voice is often quite soft, playful, and breathy, but the songs themselves are filled with violence and rage and grief. There's at least one murder ballad on it. There might be two. Um, there's like a great tension there. It's just, a, it's a really wonderful album that I I find myself listening to at least once, maybe a day right now. So uh, Silences by Adia Victoria is really great. I recommend it to everyone. Nice. All right, Ben. Uh, my endorsement is the band Talk Talk, specifically the 1988 album Spirit of Eden. But um, the reason that I'm endorsing Talk Talk today is because um, the lead singer of Talk Talk, whose name is Mark Hollis, died. Um, uh, he was pretty young. I think he was in his 60s uh, in late February. And he is probably one of the most influential musicians in popular music in you know the late 20th century but is not actually that well known outside of music nerds and the story of the band is so fascinating because they started out 
really is like a Duran Duran ripoff band. Um, their first their first album, especially, is just is like kind of eighties new wave, not particularly interesting. And then on their second album, they kind of break through, and you start to hear some some real artistic motivation creep into their music. And I have a clip from. Uh, their second album, which is called It's My Life, and you might recognize the song as the title track from It's My Life. So this song was famously covered by No Doubt, um, and that's the version of the song that I think most people probably know. Through the late 80s, their music became weirder and weirder. Their third album has Child Choir heavily featured onto it. And then as of their fourth album, Talk Talk basically disintegrates as an actual like band in the sense of it and becomes a improvisational jazz rock ensemble <laughs> and uh, their fourth album which is called Spirit of Eden so beautiful is one I mean it's you know a top three album of all time I think for me and it was it was recorded entirely by candlelight and is some people consider it sort of the invention of post-rock. There's a lot of music that really descends directly from Talk Talk and the specific album, and I believe the, the song that I have uh, queued up is called Desire. In time, rivers, So I mean, you can hear just the the elemental power of Mark Hollis's voice. I think in that song after they released um, Spirit of Eden, they released another album that is even sparser called Laughing Stock. And then in 1998, I, I think Mark Hollis released a solo album um, that is also really well regarded. And then after that, he basically disappeared. No one heard from him. <laughs> he kind of became a recluse, and um, uh, he's one of the greatest musical voices of uh, in in popular music, and uh, it's really sad that he's no longer with us. Wow. Okay. So, so if you wanted to send somebody to a starter album, would it be Spirit of Eden? I think that Spirit of Eden. I mean, the um, it's my life is a great pop album, uh, and but it's just you feel free to just skip straight to Spirit of Eden. It is um, a remarkable record that was a huge flop. Uh, in its own time, but over the years has become a, you know, a cult, um, a real cult album. 
Oh, I will listen. Can I say, I, I, you know, there's a male vocal style that has basically vanished that was big back then of like Colin Hay from Men at Work. and Depeche um, Mode ta- also. Talk, talk Depeche Mode. Uh, uh, Edwin Collins, when he was with Orange Juice of this kind of moaning, high voiced, often British, uh, uh, man. And I say, bring it back. Let's have more like. Dyspeptic our... British moaning. Yeah, yes, yes. Yeah. We need. We, I miss that. I miss that. Bring it back. Okay, so um, also very, very quickly, I would also recommend people pick up the, I think it's like the 15th anniversary Blu-ray or DVD of the film Showgirls. And there's a commentary track on the film by a critic and performer named David Schmader um, in which he discusses the film Showgirls um, as you're watching it. And he's kind of commenting on it. He's making fun of it a little bit, also talking about the production and pointing out these little details. If you are um, a fan of the film Showgirls, as I am, and I'm sure all of our listeners are, as all right-thinking people are, highly recommend um, watching Showgirls with the commentary by uh, David Schmader. Oh my God, I love Showgirls and I adore a good commentary track. Actually, Paul Verhoeven is known for his insanely good commentary track, Mm -hmm. so I'm interested to hear somebody else talk about a Verhoeven film on commentary. Showgirls is only 15 years old? I think it's actually 20, but this is the, uh, this was, I think, originally on the 10th anniversary or the 15th anniversary edition of the DVD. I think that all of the recent since then, all of the editions of the DVD have had this commentary track on it, though. It's so worth watching. It's wonderful. Physical me- I mean, physical media, I feel like commentary tracks alone are an argument for the continued existence of, of DVDs, right? The fact that commentary tracks could disappear just makes me so very sad. Yeah. I'm hoping that this is a test for whether Julia Turner actually listens to the show when she's not on it, because this is a very Julia-directed endorsement. When she moved to L.A., she asked us and asked all of you listeners for things to read or see to learn about her new city. And I've come across this great blog that Julia Turner would love. So she better be listening right now. It has a great name. It's called Paradise Least. And uh, it's, huh. a, it's a blog about architecture, about historical Hollywood and Southern California architecture, specifically, but not only um, movie stars, homes and, you know, locations for films and things like that. Uh, I found this, I came upon it by accident because I was looking for some information about Buster Keaton's living situation before he moved into the Italian villa, which is, you know, the big movie star home that he lived in for, I guess, about five, six years in the 20s before his life fell apart. And uh, learned on this blog a lot of interesting things about that house, including that it was in, within walking distance of Charlie Chaplin's house, Harold Lloyd's house, Rudolph Valentino's house, and Pickfair, the estate of Mary Pickford and Douglas Fairbanks. It was sort of this small community of, you know, it was like a new development, except everybody in the development was a movie star. But in addition to that, I just started hopping around on the Paradise Least blog and learning all of this great stuff about Southern California architecture. This site is run by one guy. His name's Steve Vaught, and he works as a, as a writer and producer of documentary films, specifically featurettes, actually, um, interviews with, you know, makers of films and kind of things that come at the end of maybe a classic movie, right? Uh, So as a film historian, he has this interest in the architecture all around him. He's also just one of those wonderful obsessives who somehow graphomaniacally just produces outside of his daily work, these beautifully written blog posts about uh, California architecture. And the way that I recommend, because there's so much content, this has been going on since 2010, this blog, the way that I recommend looking at it is just go to the search bar And uh, if you, like me, are interested in 
how the stars lived. Just enter somebody's name, Betty Davis, Cary Grant. You're going to either learn about where they lived, where they went drinking, <laughs> you know, how they installed their swimming pool. He's going to have some incredible piece of real estate related trivia about that star. And it's not all Hollywood stars either. You can also just learn about historic architecture and, you know, great buildings that are still standing. You could design a really wonderful tour of Los Angeles for yourself. Many wonderful different tours of Los Angeles looking at this this blog. So Paradise Least, uh, Julia, go check it out. All right, Isaac, thank you for joining us again. I hope you'll be back soon. Uh, it's such a pleasure. Thanks, Dana. And Ben, thank you for breaking through the glass like the Kool-Aid man and coming into the studio <laughs> to be oh, a co-host. yeah. <laughs> You will find links to some of the things we talked about today on our show page at slate.com slash culturefest. We also have a Twitter feed at SlateCultFest, so you can always contact us there. Our producer and co-host this week is Benjamin Frisch. Our production assistant and producer this week is Alex Barish. For Isaac Butler and Benjamin Frisch, I'm Dana Stevens, and we will see you next week. Here's a short preview of our Slate Plus segment. If you want to hear the whole thing, sign up for Slate Plus at slate.com slash culture plus. I mean, I can't even get into all the reasons Grizzly Man is great, but it is one of those documentaries that the story itself is incredibly fascinating, but the questions that it brings up about nature, about mental illness, everything in that movie matters and is taken seriously. And mm-hmm. uh, anyway, it's just a beautiful film, Herzog's Grizzly Man. Yeah, it's wonderful.